It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, if you like either Howard Stern or Bruce Springsteen, you got about an hour of it on Morning Joe today. And I realize now why Stern, who does very few interviews, went on. He's promoting an HBO special uh, this weekend, being made two and a half interview, two and a half hour interview with Bruce Springsteen, which I have talked about. Uh, and they played some clips, and it reminded me of certain things from the interview. And by the way, I mean it was just a sort of mutual love fest between uh, Joe Scarborough, Willie Geist, and Howard Stern, although he did make fun of Joe and Mika and it looked like they were not that thrilled about it. Um, uh, Talking about how Springsteen had said, you know what, kids don't need a rock star at home, they need a dad. Uh, You know, you may be one of the most famous musicians in the world, but to your young ones, um, they don't need that all that much. and how he, how Springsteen had been in therapy because he had to learn how to love because he was a father who didn't give him love. Uh, he had to learn how to love like learning the guitar. That was really interesting. Um, and at one point in the interview, I completely forgot about this, Springsteen talked about his difficult relationship with his father, and he said that he, Bruce, uh, was a fraud because he was not really a blue-collar guy, never worked in any factory, but his dad had, and so he was kind of channeling his father's life um, in all of the, you know, Jersey Shore, hitting the bars and, you know, working in the factory, let's get on a motorcycle and we're born to run. And then Howard said that on his in his radio career, called him a moron and said he was an artist, never succeed, he was doing an impression of his dad, who would yell and scream and was super opinionated. And I just thought that was fascinating. Um, I might have more on that in the next podcast. Oh, okay. So uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, was down at the border yesterday in El Paso saying, demanding that the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas resign. And if he doesn't when the House Republicans take over, he will be impeached. Now, because, yes, they could impeach him, uh, but then, of course, with the Democratic Senate, that would go nowhere. What this is about is Kevin McCarthy trying to play to the right flank of his party so he can get enough votes to be elected Speaker. It only takes, with a five-vote margin, it only takes five defections, unless McCarthy can get some Democratic votes, for him to get that job. Uh, so that was the latest, uh, you know, also going after Ilhan Omar, which I talked about recently. Uh, tragically, another mass shooting. This is in a Walmart in Virginia. Uh, disgruntled worker killing six people. And, you know, a lot of play certainly in this area. But sadly, tragically, you know, mind-numbingly, we've reached a point where, you know, that is like, oh, this is terrible. And it takes something like the shooting at the Colorado Springs nightclub, where we still don't have him. Now we've got the suspect, not the suspect, I mean, yeah, I'll call him the suspect. Uh, he is fluid, wants to be known as they or them. I don't care about that. Five people are dead. A lot of other people were wounded who tackled him as an absolute hero, as I have said. Um, 
you know, I was on uh, Martha McCallum's show yesterday. She was off. I was on with Trace Gallagher, who's very good, talking about Elon Musk. I am the senior Elon Musk reporter uh, for Fox News, at least for that show. And um, what we were talking about is the latest, you know, which I think uh, I've already addressed here, and that is Musk having to give up, I, I should say, in, postpone indefinitely the Twitter verification service. Uh, he was supposed to, remember, they trotted it out, and then you got, you know, people who pretending to be LeBron James, Jesus Christ, uh, Elon Musk, all getting verified. So it was a complete failure. And Musk said, okay, we're going to bring it back by next week. Well, yesterday he said, oh, we're not doing it next week. I don't know what the date is. We've got to get this right. So it's a failure. It was an admission of failure that he rushed it in a way you wouldn't rush bringing out a Tesla car, as I said on the air. Um, but what's interesting to me is that just before, uh, you know, I found a new tweet uh, from Musk talking about all these liberal media types who are just slamming the hell out of him. It is shocking, says Elon, how many journalists viciously attack free speech, but somehow they think they're the good guys. And he also said, as is obvious to all but the media, there is not one permanent ban on even the most far-left accounts spouting utter lies. Um, Musk also made the point that he didn't restore Kanye West's account. That was done by the previous management. He wasn't consulted. And finally, just hours ago, Having already taken a whack at the uh, New York Times, he now has decided to, after the Washington Post uh, and Jeff Bezos, in response to something that somebody posted, Musk says, inmates are running the asylum at WAPO while Jeff parties in his hot tub. So take that, fellow. Uh, one more quick thing. Uh, CNN chairman Chris Licht uh, doesn't like the way uh, some of what he's doing there has been characterized in an interview with Financial Times. He says, one of the biggest misconceptions about my vision is that I want to be vanilla, that I want to be centrist. That is bull, he said. You have to be compelling. Sometimes you just point out uncomfortable questions. Either way, you don't see it through a lens of left-right. If everything's 11, if everything's breaking news, and no one listens, then there's actually a crisis. No, really, the house is on fire now. I don't think centrist is an insult, but apparently he took it that way. Not responding to me, of course. All right. I want to lead the podcast today with Donald Trump. I led Media Buzz last week with Donald Trump because there were all these dramatic developments involving Donald Trump. One, he declared for president. Two, the Justice Department appointed a special counsel. And three, Elon allowed him back on Twitter, although he's not. I think he's trying to work something out because he's still trying to pull off this merger deal with True Social. That may be. I thought he'd be back on by now, but I'm telling you, it's inevitable. All right, so today we're talking about the Supreme Court ruling yesterday afternoon, clearing the way for a Democrat to get Trump's tax returns. This has been a long-running legal battle. Um, now, I have to jump in here because, you know, CNN and MSNBC went nuts over this, um, understandably. You know, unanimous ruling, and that includes, you know, it's a, this is a conservative supermajority, but every single justice, including the three Trump appointees, went along with this, which is good for the independence of the Supreme Court. I don't think returns were leaked to the New York Times. I think we may find out, one, that uh, Trump used very creative but legal means to reduce his tax bill. 
uh, and two, and that he may not be as rich as he was claiming. And, you know, House Ways and Means can make that public, but they got to get it quickly, right? Because if, uh, you know, Congress, the session of Congress, and then the Republicans take over. I'm not sure of the timing here. So there was an unsigned order, didn't provide any legal reasoning. Um, the House has been trying to get these tax returns since 2019, which, of course, is the first year that Dems were back in control after the first Trump midterms. Uh, it asked the justices to extend a lower court stay. Lawyers for Trump uh, didn't have any comment. Back to the 2016 campaign when Donald Trump claimed audit didn't do what just about every presidential candidate since Richard Nixon has done and make public his tax returns. So that was one thing that happened. The second thing that happened involved the federal appeals court. And some of the news stories says, well, the court signaled. And I, I looked at this and it was not signaling. It was announcing with bright neon lights that it overturned the appointment of the special master. Now, I know this gets confusing. Special counsel, special master. Remember the Trump-appointed judge in Florida? Um, her name was Aileen Cannon. Seemed to be sort of acting as a defense lawyer. And he went to her, even though she had nothing to do with the case, which was being heard by a different judge, and she agreed to appoint a special master who would review all the documents and kind of slow up the DOJ probe. Well, the uh, three-judge panel of the uh, Court of Appeals in Atlanta made very clear what it's going to do with this. Um, in the questioning, some of these justices, the, the three uh, appellate judges, just came out and said this was without precedent. It had never been done before. Uh, that Judge Cannon had overstepped by inserting herself into the case. Like, what did she have to do with it? She was in its investigation of Trump and the top secret national security records at Mar-a-Lago. Um, all the judges, two of whom are Trump appointees, uh, clearly supported the Justice Department's argument that the appointment of this special master and Cannon's efforts to keep the government from using the documents seized at Mar-a-Lago were highly unusual and wrongly decided. Uh, reading here from a New York Times story. They said there was no precedent for Cannon to have even interfered in this case because charges had not even been filed. You get to appeal this stuff if you haven't already been charged. Um, also arguing that Cannon should not have gotten involved. There was no evidence that the search was unlawful. Now, Trump's lawyer tried to sidestep that, saying, well, the Trump legal team may still offer claims that it was unlawful. It was a raid unprecedented. But one of the Trump-appointed judges said, interrupted and said, look, you can't call it a raid. It was a court-authorized search. This was a huge uh, controversy. The third judge, who was appointed by Bush, um, also made clear that he uh, was going to rule against Trump. Spending his time questioning the master review would be to, whether it would be to the order or simply reverse it. So when you're talking about how to carry it out, you pretty much know what they're going to do. They didn't ask any skeptical questions of the Justice Department. Now, a third development is that Lindsey Graham, 
uh, testified before a grand jury in Georgia, a whole separate Georgia investigation about um, the Trump efforts to interfere in that state, the famous phone call to Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, postponing it, delaying it. He shouldn't testify. Finally, he had no choice. Put out his office saying, testified for over two hours, answered all questions, was treated with respect and professionalism. Out of respect for the grand jury process, he will not comment on the substance of the questions. Interesting uh, summary from Politico. It was a nightmare day for Donald Trump in court again. Former president has no shortage of legal and political setbacks since leaving the White House, but in recent weeks, the sheer volume of acute threats, both criminal and civil, have put Trump in a vise, unlike any he's faced before. Trump has not been convicted of any crimes and professes his innocence and victimhood in all matters, but as he mounts the squeeze being put on him by prosecutors and legal adversaries cast an increasingly ominous shadow. You know, as shadows go, ominous, I think, is the worst kind. Uh, But here's the, the best sentence in the piece. It's led to a perverse mentality. The more under siege Trump is, and this reminds me of basically the last seven years, the more animated his base becomes, the more he dominates the political conversation, crowding out potential rivals. Well, I'm sure Ron DeSantis, Dee Haley, Mike Pence would rather not of them, but it does sort of suck up a lot of the media oxygen. In terms of pushing back, here's the latest on Truth Social. Sloppy Bill Barr was a weak and ineffective attorney general who was fired. He didn't quit, says Trump. And now he's nothing more than a disgruntled former employee. Barr was a Bushy, well, he had served as AG in the Bush administration, who was petrified of being impeached. I don't listen to that which the Dems were going to do until he changed course in the election. Um, he had his department said there was no evidence the election was rigged. He knows nothing about the document hoax. That's true. He's speaking as an outside commentator. And as a lawyer and former AG, he shouldn't be talking. Bill Barr always caved to the Dems. Is a disgrace to the Republican Party. Now, apparently, the former president was reacting to a piece by Barr in yesterday's New York Post, uh, Monday's New York Post, excuse me, titled, Trump threatens to burn down the GOP, it's time to move on. What the former Attorney General wrote in that column, Trump's willingness to destroy the party if he does not get his way is not based on principle, but on his own supreme narcissism. makes him unable to think of a political party as anything but an extension of himself, a cult of personality. All right. Barr took some shots, Trump took some shots back, but wow, you know, impeached, weak, rhino, sloppy. Uh, we are seeing the very familiar Donald Trump, but he's just not sending those out. 88 million Twitter followers. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Cutlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cutlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Story number two is about Joe Biden and the Biden administration. Biden administration announcing yesterday it will extend a pause on federal student loan payments again. This began in the pandemic. As courts weigh the fate of the debt forgiveness program. Now, remember, 
Biden several times delayed students having to repay those loans, but those were just, you know, extensions because of the problems of the pandemic. Well, it was supposed to end uh, next month, but now the Education Department says it will send it again until the courts reinstate Biden's debt relief program. What this really is, is an admission that Biden may never get the debt relief program. And, uh, you know, the secretary, Miguel Cardona, saying callous efforts to block student debt relief in the courts have caused tremendous financial uncertainty. We're extending the pause because it would be deeply unfair borrowers to pay a debt that they wouldn't have to pay were it not for the baseless lawsuits brought by Republican officials and special interests. Well, let me just call a timeout right there. One of the reasons Joe Biden did do this was his own legal advisors did on whether or not this was an unconstitutional overreach of executive power. You can't just say it's the mean Republicans filing lawsuits. Biden wasn't, himself wasn't sure he had the power to do this. And it may well be that it turns out to have been a midterm maneuver to try to get young people to turn out to vote for Democrats because Joe Biden did this great thing in saying they don't, you know, the people who qualify under certain income limits and so forth. And about half of those who are eligible you know, or would get up to $20,000 in federal student loan relief. About half a million borrowers who are eligible have applied for this, but they may never get it. They never get it because the president may not have the power to do this. And by the way, I always, oh, 16 million applications have been approved. I always thought it was unfair because if you worked hard and repaid your get anything. If you didn't go to college, you didn't get anything. But if you happen to be in this period of time and meeting the guidelines, um, then you don't have to repay. It's just wiped out, which of course costs the government a lot of money. We'll follow that. Story number three. Uh, I was talking about Elon Musk earlier, as you... Uh, the Atlantic has an interesting piece that I think kind of calls out the... Uh, drama and apocalyptic rhetoric about Twitter, which by the way, remember it was all those headlines, hashtag RIP Twitter. Uh, you may wake up tomorrow and there's no Twitter. Well, it's still running. I'm not saying there won't be glitches. If there's a problem, you want engineers to solve the problem, but it's still running. By the way, I went on this morning and I noticed uh, well, I personally still have a blue check because they haven't, you know, taken those away. But when I put it under the Media Buzz account, I noticed a little small check mark uh, in black and white, and it says official. I don't know where that came from. I didn't ask for it. And then I noticed that other organizations, you know, news organizations, it says official. So I think this is his effort to make clear that fake accounts or parried accounts, different for organizations as opposed to individual journalists, politicians, you name it. So here's the Atlantic piece. We're living through the most Twittery moment uh, since Elon Musk took over. Uh, tweeters have been in panic mode, as if from an aircraft about to careen into a mountainside. How's that for drama? Whoa, Musk is ruining Twitter. The service is sure to grind to a halt any day now. Where will we go next? 
going to such platforms as Mastodon, Hive, and Post, what even is this? A search for lifeboats. The result is super embarrassing and even profoundly shameful. Yes, look, okay, they're actual stakes. Elon Musk, world's richest man, uh, single-handedly destroying, uh, reinstated Trump, and, and it says Kanye West, that wasn't Elon. Babylon B fired half the staff. Okay, so he's saying it's not a non-story, but all throughout, the media who tweet as if their lives depend on it were already concerned that Musk's antics might kill off the service, which has offered them both easy access to reporting and a valuable platform for professional attention. True, true, and true. Every tweet by Musk produced its own news story as Twitter teeters on the edge. Musk orders coders Elon Musk take over. Twitter death watch captivates millions. Okay, here's where we get the reality check. I'm going to try to be honest with you here. We, the media, are giving Twitter more credence than it deserves. The community of professionals whose job and privilege it is to communicate and ideas to the public, uh, such as magazines, have massively overcompensated, mistaking Twitter's importance to them for its importance in general. Twitter feels important because it appears to represent a cross-section of all voices speaking at once for everybody. Well, Twitter has, since its start, embraced the sublime disorder of many voices speaking over one another. Twitter's more like a screaming at everybody, and no one in particular. History placing reason, posters posting at all costs, because posting is all that... Uh, and this goes on and on and on. Um, a journalist spurred Twitter's space about the supposedly imminent death of Twitter, encouraged participants to gaze at navels for three hours, drawing almost 200,000 lost souls across the event. Um, this is just ugh, painful. And I don't disagree. Media can be a very self complex, all of whom think Twitter is the lifeblood of our political culture. It's important. It drives so much news coverage. Musk drives news coverage. He's loving the attention. He's always up at the top of my feed. I guess he paid the eight bucks a month. Um, and look, it's driving traffic. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right, let's get to number four. I saw this and I see things in the print editions that I don't necessarily see online. In fact, but when I tried to find it online, I searched for it at the Washington Post. I searched for it using Google. I had a lot of trouble finding it. It just goes to show you that, you know, some news, most news organizations do a lousy job of stuff. You shouldn't have to search for it. It should come up right away. Anyway, it's a piece by Julia Mann, former press secretary to Volodymyr Zelensky, and has become a commentator about matters in Ukraine. I've interviewed her twice, very forceful and effective person. And here's what she has to say. And this really gave me a perspective that I'd never considered before. She writes, I couldn't be more thrilled that Ukraine has finally liberated town of Kherson. Yet there are still countless problems. The city has no water, gas, or electricity. People are hungry and cold. And then there are the moral and political problems, such as alleged collaborators. Consider the story of my old high school civics teacher, Tatiana Tamalina. She's 56. When the Russians occupied 
Archtamalina, who already had a reputation as a pro-Russian separatist, they appointed her of Kyrgyzstan State University, high-profile cultural position that would only have gone to someone that they believed was willing to work hand-in-hand with the occupation government. So she is or was a collaborator. In August, the Ukrainian government launched an investigation into her activities that could be under suspicion of committing the crime of collaboration. The accusation was linked to her alleged dissemination of Russian propaganda, her implementation of Russian curriculum, and her efforts to train a new generation of pro-Russian journalists under the guise of a media school. Okay, on September 12th, her Kyrgyzstan apartment was blown up. Mandel writes, the circumstances are murky, but it's widely assumed the attack was carried out by Ukrainian pardoning her for working with the Russians. She survived, but ended up in intensive hospital. One man, apparently her security guard, died at the scene. Then it gets even more personal. My feelings about Tamalina were complicated even before the war. I never liked her lessons. She didn't react well to questions and seemed to enjoy bullying her students. She taught us for only one semester. Julia says that most people in Kyrgyzstan are loyal to Kiev. But there have been many collaborators, including identifying them and bringing them to account. It's a challenge now that the city is free. But I'm supposing maybe there's another side to this because, first of all, many some of these people may have had no choice because the Russian military ruled the place. And, you know, maybe you were threatened if you didn't take jobs, because obviously they need Ukrainians, collaborators, you could call them, to keep the electricity on, to keep the schools running, etc. Maybe others collaborated because they, maybe they were, as this woman is alleged to be, Tatiana Tamalina, um, pro-Russian separatists. But does it make sense now that, you know, let's say that Ukraine is able to keep control of not just Kyrgyzstan, but that whole eastern flank where the Russians were forced to retreat. And it's going to be a long, cold winter there with all the Russian bombs, the Ukrainian infrastructure. And it's just, you know, Russia has no military strategy anymore. It's just a strategy of atrocity. I saw somebody put it that way. I thought that was very apt, you know, trying to, the bombings, the long-range bombings, and um, plunge the country into a very cold winter. Should some of the collaborators be forgiven in the spirit of unity? Should they all be prosecuted? Is it a war crime to collaborate with the enemy? I I can see an argument that it absolutely is. And I can see an argument for pardons, you know. More on that as the story develops. I think you you don't really get to that until the war is over. I mean, do you want to expend the political energy? Maybe you do it as a symbolic matter so that other people don't collaborate. But there's still a war to win. All right, story number five. I don't want to beat up on Joe Biden's granddaughter, Naomi Biden, who got married uh, House. But the White House press corps is pretty upset about the following. And Mediaite has a very good take on this. So Naomi Biden and her now husband could have chosen to gotten married privately. Instead, they used the White House. But it was, it was, cover, it was only allowed to be covered at all by the White House press corps, I should say. Um, a couple of pictures were put out couple of official statements, and that was it. What Corrine Jean-Pierre said at the time when she was asked by reporters about this, if you're going to use the White House, shouldn't it be public, or at least partially public? She said, it's a family event. 
and Naomi and Peter have asked that their wedding be closed to the media and we are respecting their wishes. This is something that the couple have decided. And so, the press secretary said, understanding you all have interest, understanding the media has interest in this, it's a joyous occasion. We all want to celebrate them. We'll be releasing pictures and photos and a statement from the president and first lady following the ceremony. Again, this is their wish. And okay, I was willing to buy that. But now it turns out that the couple who wanted privacy and wouldn't let the media cover their wedding and just put out statements on a couple of official photos actually negotiated a deal with magazine to cover, to do a big digital cover story on all of this. So the reporters, the press out uh, on the rationale of privacy, but Vogue magazine, well, um, the press is really pissed and I'll give you some of the quotes. Emily Gooden of the Daily Mail. A reminder, the White House told the press that Naomi and Peter wanted a private wedding. And in this, this is a cover shot. It's a wonderful picture of Naomi Biden on a sort of a bench, leaning her head against Jill Biden, who's kind of comforting her. It's a wonderful photo, but something the press didn't have access to. However, there's a loophole here. Well, let me just read you some more of this. Fox News, Jackie Heinrich. Nothing says privacy quite like a full Vogue spread. Um, Niels Lisniewski of CQ Roll Call. I think we all sort of knew this would happen. They wouldn't let pool photographers in because their rights were sold. We should have known. I don't know if any money changed hands in this or not. Ashley Parker accused the White House of comparing it to Trump. She says, I spent four years covering the Trump White and two years covering the Biden White House. What's fascinating is the Trump team was shameless, whereas Biden team is too cute by half. In the New York Times, we cover the small lies politicians tell because they can give way to bigger ones. Lee Rogers, New York Times. I had reporting in October about Vogue being tapped to cover this, and I was waved off. Official explanation. Here's the really fascinating part. The family staged a wedding at the White House shoot beforehand. So the White House can say with a straight face, no, 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 cover the wedding. We just had a faux wedding to provide Vogue with all these pretty pictures and interviews. And here are some of the quotes that I'm sure White House reporters would have liked to have had if they could have interviewed Naomi Biden and her husband. Naomi, we're so close to our families, so we always knew we'd get married in someone's backyard. There's family backyard in Jackson, Wyoming. Uh, there's just such beauty and history in this place. We that says Naomi. She was surprised to find that Peter was a bit of a bridezilla, obsessed with all the details. Um, but she was not surprised by the involvement of the first lady, known among the grandchildren as Nana. I do know she lost sleep over the fact that I was planning to serve turkey sandwiches at the lunch. They amended the menu to hot pie, as it is Hunter's favorite. Biden cooks for him every year on his birthday. But she has really stressed to me that every time I get anxious about wedding stuff, to take a breath and remember, it's just a day about Peter and me and being around the people we love. She's taught me so much about being independent and be a self and fiercely loyal partner. Interesting stuff. I'm sure Vogue is thrilled to have this. There are lots of exclusive photos. I'm using air quotes here behind the mic uh, at this stage wedding, which to most people will look like the well, it doesn't take much to uh, upset the White House press corps, but being denied access to an event that then goes to a magazine, yeah, I think that will qualify. Hey, folks, I always appreciate your time. 
Tomorrow is Thanksgiving. I hope you all have a wonderful day. I will be taking the day off as well, which is very rare for me. Uh, I'll probably do something on Friday, just some reflections uh, for those of you who are interested, if I am so moved. So you can look for the podcast on Friday and see whether I uh, am, uh, can rouse myself, because I've also got to do uh, a lot of work on Media Buzz, because everybody's got the day off tomorrow. So we will see you soon, probably Friday, if not on Monday with more BuzzFeed. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.